We're going to be back in the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and of course, as we've been moving through this, we have been seeing Paul unfold this masterful book about the value and the worth of knowing Jesus Christ, the one who one day before him every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We look forward to that day when we will bow before him and worship him as King of kings and Lord of lords. As we've come into chapter 3, Paul expresses the, the greatness of the value of knowing Jesus Christ. That He is the one that He is willing to trade everything that He thought was of value. He's willing to give that up to know Jesus Christ. And He tells us about how He pursues knowing a Christ. And He recognizes that even though He has not yet attained it to perfect knowledge of Christ, He has not yet attained it to a level of perfect sanctification before God, rather He presses on. He wants to know Christ more fully, to know Him better and better. He wants to lay aside the the things that would hold Him back, the the things in His past that maybe He perhaps would be relying upon that is not doing Him any good anymore, or things in His past that that He regrets, or things that that He is saddened by. He he wants to set all those things beside and, and let all those things be in the past, forgetting what lies behind and looking forward to what lies ahead, and straining forward, stretching, reaching out for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And He calls us to do the same. He calls us to have the same mindset. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And then in verse 16, he says, let us hold true to what we have attained. And so we have seen that the progressing of Christian life is one that, that desires to continue to move forward. And now as we come into the, the last paragraph of chapter 3, he calls us to continue. He's, he's continuing on along the same line of thinking. He says, I want you to know Christ and, and I want you to have this same mindset that's a part of your lives. But, but even now, as, as you continue on to live out your Christian lives, he urges us to imitate those who would follow after this pattern of living. Look with me, if you will, at Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even now with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved." Paul continues to give several identifying marks of what it means to grow in our Christian faith. If we are to progress in our Christian life, this is what it looks like. We, we saw last week about how the progressing Christian life is marked by a holy discontentment. It is marked by a, a focus and a determination. and is marked by having the, this mindset amongst themselves. And now Paul continues along this same line of thinking urging us, the progressing Christian life, the life that is making progress towards maturity, is marked by additional things. And we see the first thing is that the progressing Christian life imitates the life of Paul. The progressing Christian life imitates the life of Paul. It says in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. 
we see in this verse there are two imperatives. And as we see the unfolding of Paul's argument, we're going to see that he's got these two imperatives, these two commands for what we ought to be doing. And then he's going to give us two reasons for why we ought to do those things. And then he's going to conclude with a conclusion as, as he reflects upon those commands and reasons. The first commands, though, are to imitate me and to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. The first command is to imitate. Join in imitating me. That word to imitate, it has the idea of being a a co-imitator. As Paul commands us to imitate Paul, he, he wants us to do so collectively as a body. Join it together in imitating me. Be co-imitators of Paul. There's the idea of doing this together. This is an instruction that's directed at just a a couple of individuals. There there are some individuals within church, you need to imitate Paul, and the rest of you, well, it doesn't matter so much what you do. No, we're to do this together. As a body, as as a church, As the people of God, we are to band together and to imitate Him and to encourage one another to do the same, to be co-imitators of Paul. This is also to be an ongoing action. The the, the present tense, it communicates a continuous imitation of Paul. Paul says, imitate me, continue in imitating me, continually do this thing. It might cause us to think for a moment, okay, how, how do we do that? How is it that we ought to be imitating Paul? Well, the context gives us the answer, right? As, as we consider the context and all the things that we have been considering over the last several weeks, we, we can imitate Paul by doing the things that he has described that he has done himself. When we count the deeds of our flesh as worthless... We imitate Paul. We pursue knowing a Christ. We forget what lies behind. We reach forward. We stretch forward to what lies ahead. This is Paul's approach to life, and he calls us to imitate that pattern of life. And honestly, if we if were to think about that for a moment, why would we want to do anything else? Why would we ever want to do anything else other, other than to know Jesus Christ? To know Him more truly and more fully. Oftentimes our flesh does get in the way, but, but when we are really pursuing and prioritizing knowing Christ, and again, it's not just knowing stuff about Christ, knowing facts and knowing information about who Jesus Christ is and what He has done, having a, a perfect Christology, it's good to have Christology, right? That's, that's important. But to know Christ, to know Him personally, that building that relationship with Him, getting to know Christ Himself, going to war in prayer, strengthening our spiritual muscles. As men, individuals who are, are called to Christ, we, we become stronger when we are conformed to the image of Christ. As women, your beauty radiates all the more as your spirit shines forth with the glory of Christ. Scripture tells us these things, that as we know Christ more truly and more fully, and as we are conformed into His image, we are strengthened. We are prepared for the life that we have to live. We're able to do that which God has called us to do as men and women before God. So as we move forward, we have the the privilege of knowing Christ, knowing Him more truly, knowing Him more fully, and who in turn, He strengthens us and causes us to excel in our Christian walk. So why would we want anything else? We get Christ. We get the one who has died for us. The one who is willing to to set aside the outward display of his beauty and his majesty and his glory in order to take on humanity and to serve us.
that's the one that we get. That's the one we get to know more truly and more deeply. Why would we want anything else? So when we come before and we imitate Paul, we imitate him by getting to know Christ, by getting to know him more truly, by, by studying God's word and be, be engaged in prayer with God to know Jesus Christ. We notice what else Paul says here with the second command. He's, he says to imitate me, but then he also says to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. As I was reflecting on this concept of, of walking, I, was, I remember a, a time I had this, this co-worker who we were working. It was uh, doing an electrical job downtown Louisville, and there was a man who was hired to, to be kind of a runner for us. He was hired to be a laborer, just kind of a, a go-getter kind of person to say, okay, we need this tool. Go get it from the truck. Hey, we need this material. Go to the storage uh, container and go retrieve that for us so we can continue working. Well, this individual, he was frustrating the boss because he was often a bit slower at his task of fetching the needed material or the needed tool. He was a bit slower at accomplishing that than the boss would have preferred. And so he was kind of putting him in a difficult position where he was running at risk of even being fired. Well, I wanted to be helpful to this individual, so I went to him and I sought to, to challenge him. I was like, hey man, you look. This is what's going on. You're, you're being tasked with going and fetching this material or fetching this tool. If you want to keep this job, you need to act like you want to keep this job, all right? You need to pick up the pace a little bit. Stop being so slow and just kind of walk along as slowly as you are and, and move a little bit quicker. But it was interesting, the reply, because if we were to watch him going in to fetch this thing, and there was, in fact, one time the, the boss wanted to know, okay, why is it taking him this long? So he gave him a job to do just so that he could look out the window and watch to see him go fetch the thing. And he just, he moved with this particular cadence in this, this particular gait. He was very methodical in this way. And it was just a slow pace. And so I was challenging him on that. And, and when I challenged him, his reply was this. He said, you know, my dad had the same walk. And my dad had that walk, and, and so I have no intention of changing my walk because that's how my dad walked. And there are others, when they see, when, if there's others who, who knew my dad real closely, and they know how he walked, and when they see me walk, they know we're related because I have the same walk that my dad had. We have the same walk. And that was something that was important to him, and truly that's something that I don't quite understand. <laughs> Honestly, it's a little bit uh, strange and, and foreign to me. But this was, this was a factor for him, that, that he imitated the walk of his dad. That you could tell that there was a resemblance, that there was a likeness between how he carried about his, just his normal everyday walking about and how his, his dad did that. And when they saw him, they knew that he was his father's son. Well, in a similar way, we are called to walk, not physically as we just walk about life, right? But there's the idea of walking carries a, a greater meaning in the text of Scripture. To walk, it, it speaks to how you live your life, your behavior, your manner of life, just how you do everything in life. We are to be imitating others. <clears throat> Paul says to keep your eyes on those who walk who, those who live their lives, who, those who behave in a particular way. And what is that particular way? According to the example that you have in us. Paul says, imitate me. And when you're not sure how I would do one thing or another, look at to others who are also following in this same pattern, this, this same mold that's been laid forth before you. There are others that are in that stream who are imitating us and, and look to them and keep your eyes on them. That's the idea of, of, of keeping your eyes on. It's a continual watching to pay attention to. The idea is that we learn from that which we watch. Or we learn and we gather from that. 
when children are first learning to walk, they, they're not learning from a book, right? They're not opening up and saying, hmm, I wonder how you walk, and they're, they're trying to get instructions, right? That's, that's not how that goes. As they grow, they, they're seeing other people walking about and say, hey, you know, I kind of want to do that too, and so they stand themselves up and they try it. They see how other people are walking, and so they try to do the same thing, and sometimes they stumble and they fall. Of course, that happens. But they keep trying, they keep getting back up, and they try again. We learn from how we watch others. When I was uh, in college, I was, a, uh, I was a walk-on to the college soccer team. And I played soccer, and it was great fun. But it was a great learning experience as well, because I had never played soccer before in my life. And I'd, it was, it was, uh, I was just a walk-on in college. It was just something uh, fun that I thought I wanted to do. And so I, I joined the team, and I was learning. And early on, it was a little bit difficult, and it was a challenge. But there came a point where I decided I was going to start watching these YouTube videos of these guys playing soccer and just watching the highlights of how they were maneuvering the ball to me, I felt like it actually improved my ability to play because I was watching how they were maneuvering the ball, how they were using their feet, the footwork that was at play. And I would go out and I, and I, wouldn't, try to, I wouldn't try to do all the fancy moves that some of these people can do, but just the fundamentals of how you move and how, you, how your footwork operates when you're playing, I learned and I gathered that just from watching and there was a point when one of my teammates came up to me and noticed, hey, I noticed you've, you've been improving really quickly here in this area. He's like, well, I've been watching these YouTube videos. And he says, that explains it. We learn when we watch others. And that's the idea here. Pay attention. Look closely. See how others are conducting their lives. Those who, who you know they have the example, they're, they're following after the example of Paul. You, you see the alignment in their lives between the things that, that Paul talked about, the way Paul lived his life, and the way these individuals live their lives. Keep your eyes on those individuals. Watch them. Pay attention and emulate their manner of life. Again, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to be able to do it perfectly just by watching other people do things. But we learn, and we grow. And when we see the example of others, uh, and when it's a positive example, and they're, they're faithfully living out at God's Word in their life, and we begin to practice the same things. And we'll stumble and fall just like a child stumbles and falls, just like I tripped over the ball at one point when I was trying to do the moves I was seeing on YouTube. But we practice. We see it. And we do it as we live out our lives. That's what Paul wants us to do, to watch others who are more mature in the faith as it helps us to be mature in our faith and our walk. Now, what are we looking for? Okay, we're to watch these individuals. What are we looking for? Are we looking for someone that has great oratory skills that can just wow a crowd? Are we looking for individuals that just demonstrate this, this great leadership ability and they're able to just organize things and get things just laid out all so nicely? Are we, are we looking for someone who's got an impressive resume? Oh, you've graduated from such and such a school and you, man, you had uh, high honors or blah, 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 whatever the case may be. Are those the things that we're looking for and watching for? No. Again, it, the context tells us what we watch for. They're following after the example of Paul. Paul has laid forth a pattern, an example. That's the concept of an example. It is a, a pattern, a mold, a, 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 like you're tracing something out. It's a stencil. There's a, there's a mold. There's a pattern there. Paul has laid that out for how he lives his life, how he presses on towards the goal of, of greater knowledge, of greater sanctification that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what we're to watch for. That's what we're to look for. When we see individuals that are pursuing knowing Christ, it's not oratory skills, it's not a resume, it's not leadership ability. Do these individuals pursue Christ? That's what we look for. That's the example that we want to follow. Knowing Christ. Sadly, there are some who would prefer something else. 
And Paul contrasts the, the progressing of Christian life with the lives of those who have but a earthly mindset. We have seen what a progressing Christian life looks like. Well, now we have an example of individuals who are not progressing in their Christian life. But they have an earthly mindset. Paul says to imitate me, to look for at the example of others who are following this same example. And, and here's the reason why. Here's one of the reasons why. Because there are some who don't do this. There are some who walk contrary to the example There are some who do not pursue knowing Christ. And this is the result. If we do not pursue Christ, this is where it will lead us. Verse 18. For many, again that for, the word for, it's it's a causal connector. There's a reason. This is why we do this. For, because, for this reason. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Those who are progressing in their Christian walk, they will seek to imitate Paul as, as Paul seeks to know Christ. And they will watch and follow the same pat- others who follow the same pattern. But there are some who are less interested in knowing Christ and are more preoccupied with the things of this world. Many who I have told you and tell you even now with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There's a few things I, I want us to notice about the way Paul approaches these individuals who are living as enemies to the cross of Christ. It's likely that these individuals would have even been those who professed faith in Christ. The, the, the terminology that Paul uses seems to indicate that. And yet by their lives, they're living in an opposite way. And Notice it says that he warned about these individuals on many occasions. He says, for many of whom I have often told you. Right? This is something that he's talked about before. He's warned them both in person probably and he's warned them through letter. We find many texts that, that speak about this. There's, there is never a shortage of individuals who oppose the cross of Christ In fact, the majority of the New Testament letters either contain warnings about false teachers or at least were perhaps were written specifically to confront false teaching. This is a constant battle within the church. Listen to these texts, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, when Paul is is on his way back to Jerusalem where he know he will be imprisoned. He gives his last address to the Ephesians and he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5, through 5, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And he says, avoid such people. And then he, Peter similarly wrote in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, but false prophets also among, arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. As long as 
Christ tarries, there will be individuals who will seek to pervert the way of truth, who will seek to bring about destruction, who are not content merely to just live their own lives of destruction that they're bringing upon themselves, but rather to lead others into the same thing. But notice Paul's demeanor towards them. He says, yeah, I I warned you about this on many occasions. I've often told you about this, but he says, I tell you now with tears. I tell you with tears. I can imagine even as Paul is penning these words, the, the tears that had been forming in his own eyes as he considers that these individuals are choosing to forsake the one who died for them. They are choosing to live after their own way. Choosing to live a life that leads to destruction. He says, I tell you with tears. He is grieved that many walk as enemies of the cross. Greed because these individuals are on their way to face judgment. Grieve that they are not enjoying the joys of Christ. Saddened that they are living in such a way that causes harm upon themselves and those who they influence. It's greed because there are individuals who oppose his Lord. His Lord, the one whom Paul longs to know and desires that others would know his Lord. And his Lord is being opposed by individuals who threaten to prevent others from enjoying the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. So Paul says he tells you with tears. This should cause us to reflect, to consider. It's common in our day that when we interact with individuals that we disagree with, that there is a certain animosity that wells up within our hearts. That we can be calloused and hardened in our hearts against those who would seek to pervert the way of truth or they would seek to lead others astray. And and there is a There's an appropriateness to a a righteous indignation when there are individuals who are leading others astray and that is good and that is appropriate. But let us not harden our hearts. Let us not grow callous towards those who depart from the faith. If we allow ourselves to be hardened, we're missing something in the heart of God and the heart of Christ and the heart of Paul towards those whose end is destruction. They are on their way to a Christless eternity if they do not repent. So Paul says, I I come to you with tears. I come with grief. I want to warn you about these individuals, but I do so with sadness. Paul says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. After describing how we should pay attention to the example of those who walk or those who live, those who behave according to the same pattern or example that we have in Paul, Paul contrasts that with those who walk or those who live or those who behave in such a manner that they demonstrate themselves to be enemies of the cross. It is their walk, it is their behavior, it is their living that reveals that they are enemies. One commentator I read this week phrased things in this way that I thought was helpful. It says that the, the opposition appears to be ethical rather than ideological. Although ethics and theology are mutually informing categories for Paul, the walk terminology as well as the specific descriptions in verse 19 relate more immediately to behavior rather than to theological issues. These individuals may be able to articulate 
truth. But they're living, their lifestyle, how they are conducting themselves is revealing that they are enemies of the cross. They're spurning the one whom they claim has reconciled them. Paul speaks of the concept of reconciliation in many places, and again, I'm just going to read a few of these cross-references. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says that, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Paul pits these ideas against each other. We, we were once enemies, but now we have been reconciled to God, our right relationship with Him. Again, just a few verses later in chapter 6, he's going to argue that because we have been given new life, we ought to live as those who are alive. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Sadly, the ones that Paul refers to in Philippians chapter 3, even though they perhaps may even claim the name of Christ, they are not living as ones reconciled to God, but rather spurn the cross and show themselves to be enemies by their conduct. And this grieves This grieves Paul. He says their end is destruction. And this is what makes Paul weep. Individuals who have made themselves enemies of the cross through their behavior are not going to enter eternal life. Perhaps even they've made a profession of faith, but they remain enemies Their end is destruction and it's heartbreaking. We see individuals who are living as enemies of the cross and there are people that we love. We want them to know Christ. We want them to know the joy of knowing Christ. We want them to have life. You know, they persist in the rebellion against God and it is heartbreaking. Friends, this is what makes our witness so important. This is what it it makes it so crucial. This is why Jude calls us to rescue from the flames those who would be on their way to this end. How does Paul characterize them? He says three things about them that demonstrates that they are enemies and it's how they live their lives. First, he says that their God is their belly They are not concerned with knowing Christ. They are only concerned with their own self-indulgence. Their God being their their belly, it's it's a reference, well, it could be a reference to simply gluttony, uh, just indulging themselves in that way, or there may be a broader idea. In fact, I do think there is a broader idea here. It encompasses all areas of self-indulgence where individuals are simply seeking to gratify their own fleshly desires in some way. Perhaps it is food, or perhaps it is other things, perhaps things like pornography, or or even sports, or even just simple things like rom-coms and model trains, or whatever else that we use to, to gratify the flesh, something that we can give ourselves over to, having a nice car, having a nice house. It can be anything, anything that is done to gratify the desires of the flesh that demonstrates that someone is not living to know Christ, but is living for their own selfish desires. Their God is their own belly. And they're living for their own gratification. But it's, it's even worse than just that. He says their glory is their shame. They are proud of their lives. They're happy not only to be living as they are, but they rejoice in it. Rather than bowing the knee to Christ and confessing Him as Lord to the glory of God the Father, they bow their knee to their own belly and take their glory in what they ought to view as their shame. They glory in their shame. What should be a source of shame is instead a matter of pride. And this is ultimately because their minds are not set on what it should be, but rather they're set on earthly things. 
So it says the end of verse 19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul has called us to forget what lies behind and stretch forward to what lies ahead, to press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. He calls us to look up, our eyes on Jesus Christ. The author to the Hebrews says that, that we are to lay aside the sin that so easily besets us and look unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Paul wrote to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's how we should have our minds. That's where our mindset should be, on things above, looking unto Jesus. These individuals, their mindset is not that way. Their minds are set on earthly things. They cannot think beyond their life here and now and so as to live for eternity, but rather they are consumed by what this life has to offer, and this is deadly. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. There's the idea of enemies again. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Preoccupation with things of this world is deadly. How are we to engage with these individuals? How are we to reach out to them? We need to call them to repentance. We need to plead with them and appeal to them. Please turn from this. We need to warn them with tears. If they are to die in their state, their end is destruction. Pray that God would have mercy and save them out of their sin to reconcile them to himself, to cause them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Pray that God would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And this teaching serves as a warning to us as well. These individuals may be operating under the false assumption that their sins are forgiven. Well, hey, if they're in Christ, then it doesn't matter how we live our lives. We can indulge ourselves no matter what because, hey, I punched my ticket. I'm good to go. I don't have to worry about anything else. Christ will forgive me. There's many that view life that way. It's very common to interact with individuals just as, a, uh, as we were doing our, um, our prayer station out at the farmer's market interacting with individuals. It was not uncommon to hear someone say, well, God will forgive me. I don't have to worry about it. Well, God will forgive you if you truly actually are repentant and have faith in Christ. But these individuals are not professing genuine saving faith in Christ. They are indulging themselves and glorying in what should be a source of shame and Paul has these words of warning. If you think your sins are covered by the cross but you're living as enemies of that very cross, your end is destruction. So please don't go there. But by God's grace, we shall not. By God's grace, we shall not. After what can be a depressing couple of verses. Paul shows his heart for the lost. He shows the heartbreaking nature of their condition, but he gives us some encouraging words. He gives us some encouraging words about what awaits those who do seek to know Christ. And we see that the progressing Christian life has its end in glorification. Those who do not progress in their Christian life, those who decide to live according to the earthly mindset, their end is destruction. Well, the progressing Christian life has its end in glorification. Look with me at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables even Him to subject all things to Himself. 
Again, those who live in rebellion, the end of their life is destruction. But for those who live as those who desire to know Christ and to pursue knowing Christ, on the contrary, our citizenship is in heaven. Not only does this passage serve as a, a contrast, or this, these, these verses serve as a contrast to the living the life of, of earthly mindset, there is that contrast there, but this also serves as a, a second reason for why we ought to live as Paul instructs, as to following after that pattern, that model of life. I don't often go into Greek grammar issues in my sermons, uh, but I'm going to a little bit right now because I think it's necessary to help us understand what's going on here as there's going to be different translations rendering the very first word of verse 20 in different ways. In the ESV, the, the word that begins verse 20 is the word but. But that word is translated from the Greek word gar, and gar is a causal connector that is usually translated as for or because. The ESV translated as but because they, they think that there is this contrastive ideas between verses uh, 18, 19 and verses 20 and 21. And there is a bit of a contrastive idea there. But it is very rare for Gar to carry the contrastive idea. Usually, and nearly every case, Gar is an explanatory word that gives us a reason. And we would usually translate it as for or because. And in fact, that is what the NASB translates that word as, for. And so I believe that it is best to understand this as an explanatory gar. It is giving another reason why we ought to be living, as Paul has instructed back in verse 17. So Paul first gives us instructions, imitate me, keep your eyes on others who are following this same pattern. Then he gives two reasons why we ought to do that. Because if you don't, this is what your life will look like. Enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction. That's reason number one. Reason number two, because our citizenship is in heaven. We have to live according to this world. We're imitating Paul. We want to know Christ because that's the one we're going to be with. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is with Christ. And we look forward to his return. The idea, this, this idea of citizenship takes us actually back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The phrase manner of life, let your manner of life, that carries the idea of citizenship. And in fact, the, the Greek word that is used there to let your manner of life, that is the same uh, root that this word is built, this, uh, this, uh, the word for citizenship, it is the noun form of the same word here referring to citizenship. And when, we, when I preached through that passage in chapter 1, we talked about how Paul was referring to citizenship, about living as good citizens of the kingdom of God. And now here he says, this is where your citizenship lies. It is in heaven with Christ. And it is from heaven that we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming back. Jesus Christ is going to return. And this is tremendously good news for us as we recognize where our citizenship lies, that we do not need to have an earthly mindset that that has us dwelling on things that are on this earth, but rather we can set our minds on things above where Christ is, where, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father on high, knowing that when Jesus Christ returns and when he remakes the world and when we enter into the new heavens and the new earth, We shall dwell with our Savior. That will be a glorious day. That will be a glorious day. Just as a little bit of a side note, those who say that eschatology isn't important kind of have to ignore quite a few verses in the Bible that talk about eschatology. This is one of these passages. Here Paul ties our behavior and our hope to the return of Jesus Christ. This is an eschatological passage, the speaking of what comes at the end. The end of those who are enemies of Christ is destruction, but our end is heaven. Our end is being with Christ. Our Savior is going to return. We'll be reunited with Him. And He's going to transform our bodies to be like His own. He will transform our lowly body. The idea of lowly is just this it is an earthly body, it is, is, is a low body. 
that we will be transformed like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. The power that Christ has when he will stand before the world, before whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That power that enables him to make that statement, to command the, the, the bowing and the adoration of everyone, that's the power that is going to transform us into the likeness of his resurrection body. I hope you're looking forward to that day. Oh, our bodies have these different issues as we live out our lives. Our bodies break down as we get older. I, <laughs> this is a very trite illustration, so forgive me for it. <laughs> I was noticed, I was watching a, a clip of uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, <laughs> watching this on YouTube, and something struck me this week. You know, we have this this very imaginative future. We've got spaceships. We've got these teleportation machines, these transporters that can beam us back and forth. And we have all this technology, this most imaginative future where most diseases are cured and, and you just have this machine that can just read what's going on in a body and all these amazing things. And with all this incredible advancement, we still cannot figure out a future that has cured male pattern baldness. <laughs> it's just comical to me. And again, that's a trite illustration. <laughs> but one day when Jesus Christ returns, transforming our bodies and, yeah, okay, male pattern baldness, whatever. One day I'm going to be bald. I don't care. But we have these other issues, right? We have aches. We have pains. Our bodies break down. We have all these hardships. And all that will be gone. All that will be gone when we receive our glorified bodies transformed into the likeness of his son. But it's not just that. Yeah, there's the physical benefits, and we rejoice and we look forward to that, the physical benefit, but there's, there's the spiritual benefits as well. Our behavior in our glorified state, no longer tempted, no longer have to endure the temptations to gratify the flesh. No more have to enduring the the sin of our own sinful hearts, cleansed, removed, taken away. We will be transformed. No more sin that so easily besets us in this life. We'll be gone. Because we will know Christ. And we will see him face to face. You're looking forward to that? I hope you are. I hope you are. He will do it, and he will do it by his sovereign power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Look forward to that day. What are, what are we to say about these things? Paul does give us a conclusion and actually carries us into chapter 4, the first verse of chapter 4. I, I think it would have been better with, with, uh, with the paragraph in chapter 3. Paul gives us the conclusion. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. The reality is, is that we are not immune to the temptations of the flesh that are exemplified in the lives of those who live as enemies of the cross. We're not immune to those things just yet. One day we will receive our glorified bodies and those things will not be a care of ours anymore. But in this present life, we are not immune to those things. The things that tempt those whose end is destruction, they tempt us as well. Paul calls us to stand firm in the Lord, to stand firm in your convictions. Stand firm in following after Paul's example. Stand firm in pursuing knowing Christ. Stand firm thus. This is how you should do it. Stand firm according to all the things that we have just discussed. And there may not be a more tender verse in all the New Testament than this verse. My brothers, my family, whom I love and, and long for, desire to see you, my, my joy, my crown, you're, you're, you bring me such great joy, I, I rejoice over you, you are my crown, my beloved, he says. 
Paul doesn't close this paragraph with a threat. You better watch out. You better not live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You better obey or else you get whacked. No, he closes with this exhortation. He says, I love you. I, I want you to persevere. I want you to be living as I am, not because I'm this great model of something to follow, but because we want to know Christ. We want to know Him and the power of His resurrection be conformed unto His likeness. This is what I want for your life. This is what I'm pursuing and I want you to pursue the same thing. Stand firm in the Lord. He tenderly appeals to them. Don't stray to the right or the left. Don't bend to the culture. Don't bend to the temptations of the flesh, but stand firm. Stand firm. Over the last two weeks, we have seen numerous principles about what it looks like to persevere and to see progress in our Christian lives. The progressing Christian life is one of a holy discontentment, not satisfied with the knowledge and the the sanctification that we have attained, but looking forward, grasping forward to what is ahead. It is determined, it is focused. We see today that it is following after that example that Paul laid for us, contrasted by those of the earthly mindsets. And the end of the progressing Christian life is glorification with our God and Savior, transformed into the likeness of His body, And we stand firm in the Lord. May God y'all give us grace as we seek to pursue and, and make progress in our Christian lives as we look forward to knowing Christ fully in glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text and this passage. Father, give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for those whose end is destruction if they do not repent and turn and trust Christ. Lord, may we only ever speak of these things with tears in our eyes. Lord, may we know Christ. Give us the grace to progress in our Christian life that we might know Jesus Christ and the joy of being united to him by faith. Lord, we look forward to your return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And may you do a mighty work of revival before your return that many more would be saved and rejoice to see your coming as well. Help us to stand firm. It's in Christ's name I pray.